Mr. Sondheim came to our preview of Sweeney. He just came up to me and said, you have to play Rose. I thought, oh, no, no, no. Anyway, cut to. It was great because it's a really good play and she's a terrible woman. An agonising place to be in your head. This mother of all mothers living her life through her children and wanting success only for herself. And it's violent and narcissistic and heartbreaking. Imelda Staunton shot to international fame for her Oscar-nominated turn in 2004's gripping drama Vera Drake. By that time, however, she'd already carved out a cosy position as one of Britain's leading stage performers. She's the winner of four Olivier Awards, three for Best Actress in a Musical, most recently for her extraordinarily intense portrayal of Madame Rose, the emotionally abusive matriarch in Stephen Sondheim's revered classic, Gypsy. Never one to be daunted by the demands of stage acting, she followed up with Edward Albee's equally intense play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And then another Sondheim favourite, Follies. From the Harry Potter films to Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland and Downton Abbey, she's conquered screens big and small, but there's nothing quite like watching Staunton's quiet brilliance at its best on London's West End stage. I'm pleased to say that I was joined by the great Imelda Staunton at our studios here in London for the big interview. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I've spoken to a few people who have made a career for themselves on the stage, and quite often, I don't know, I think it's something quite specific to theatre actors, they tend to be able to pinpoint a moment where they can say, this was the moment where I fell in love with the stage. Is that true for you? I think that might have happened to me at my audition for drama school, actually. I mean, I'd done school plays and things before, which I loved. But... I auditioned for three drama schools and two of them, the auditions, were in a room with people and the third one, I walked onto a stage, the auditorium was dark. I thought, this is where I want to be. Did it take you a while to feel safe on the stage, though? I mean, I'm obviously not an actor and I can't imagine feeling any less safe, I think, than on a stage in front of hundreds of people. Did you always feel like that the first time you walked out on a stage? I think I did, actually. And I think, you know, I was lucky enough to have started out as in our convent. We had an elocution teacher who also taught drama. And she used to put me in for drama festivals. So I would do a monologue or then with another girl, a duologue, and you would do competitions. And that was a good training. And that was very young. And and I didn't know I was going to be an actor, but I knew I, I really enjoyed doing that. And listen, I come from an Irish background and Irish people are quite happy, I think, and feel quite at ease performing mass generalisation, I know, but my mum played fiddle and the accordion and, you know, so quite extrovert. As I understand it, you grew up in the north of London. What was your exposure to the arts like when you were younger? None. (laughs) There was no exposure. You know, we weren't a theatre-going family at all. My family are Irish working-class immigrants and my mum worked hard, but we didn't do that sort of thing. Actually, it wasn't until I met my first long-term boyfriend when I was sort of 17 and they did go to the theatre and they took me to the theatre. And I saw Olivier at the Old Vic, Joan Plowright, and I did start seeing plays and thought, oh, crikey, this looks good. Because I, although I was at drama school, I then thought, well, this is just my subject. But then you see actors like that and acting like that and you're just striving to be a good actor and that's at drama school all you're really doing is you just want to you're striving you want to suffer you want to go go through all the hell you know all that and to see great performances was a huge inspiration 
I always find it so interesting when people say that they didn't necessarily grow up in an environment that was full of the arts and treated, you know, going into a career on the stage as a legitimate career path, one as legitimate as being a teacher or a doctor. Or How was it that you managed to have the confidence to look at a career in the arts and see that as a viable option? I think it was my teacher, Jackie Stoker, who had the confidence in me. And also, we didn't know what an actor's life was in our family. So the idea of me going to drama school was me going to the university for my subject. So I got into RADA, which at the time was, you know, the top drama school. So my parents were very impressed by that, although none of us (laughs) really knew what it was. So I didn't think like that. And remember, you know, I was 17 when I auditioned and I didn't have a life plan. I didn't know what it really meant. All I knew was that I was going somewhere where I could do what I loved every single day. It certainly seems on paper that it didn't seem to take you very long to really get on a solid career path by the 1980s. You were performing for the National Theatre, weren't you? Mm. Well, of course, by then I'd done six years of hardcore repertory theatre all over the country. But also, I suppose, when I was taken from drama school and I was given, you know, my first job was at Worcester, the Swan Theatre Worcester, but I was playing a lead role. So my first job, age 20, I was playing a lead role. Now, I was going all over the country playing very big parts, not all well at all, but my God, it was a great experience. And I was given a a lot of responsibility very early on, whether it's playing St. Joan, playing Piaf. Those parts in my early 20s just gave me acting muscle. Mm. What about being nominated for your first big award? As I understand it, it was for The Beggar's Opera. You were nominated for an Olivier. Mm. Well, that season, that was Richard Eyre's first season at the National. And yes, I was nominated for Best Actress in Musical and Best Newcomer. But Ken Branagh got it that year. Uh, what <laughs> happened to him? Uh, so, yes, that was, yeah, that was very strange. Very strange. <laughs> well, many more to come, of course. Now, in 1987, you starred as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Now, that was for the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's interesting, I think, the story of The Wizard of Oz, because on one hand, it is such a, you know, it's a production we're all so familiar with. But I would anticipate that that would sometimes make a little bit harder because people have this pre-existing notion of what the show could be. Obviously, you were starring as Dorothy. These days, we have Wicked. So that is another way that people have this familiarity, certainly on the stage when it comes to this production. But what struck me looking back at your performance there was that your interpretation seemed to be, I'm not sure if it was a deliberate shift away from what we know, but you seem to be quite careful about putting your own stamp on the role. You certainly weren't doing an impersonation of Judy Garland. No, who can? Who can? Well, well hopefully Rennie Zellweger can, because she's got it in the film. But no, I mean, the only, the nod to the film in that production was that we did start in black and white and went into colour on the stage, which I think was very fantastic to look at. Or oh, The script I'm doing is this script on the day and you can't go, oh, I'm not as good as her. Of course I'm not, but you just have to tell this story for these children and these adults seeing it today. And it was a tough show to do, but not too bad because my husband was playing the cowardly lion. So that was great. We had each other because it was technically a really difficult show. Well, of course, it's quite a mammoth production, isn't it? Even mm. though, you know, people look at that and see, oh, it's a kid's show. But I've seen The Wizard of Oz on the stage. There's a lot of technicalities behind that. Yes, yes. That yellow brick road, it's quite, you know, you think it's going to just roll on and it doesn't. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so at around the same time your star on the stage was rising, you started appearing in films as well. I'm coming at this topic from a non-British person, but it does seem to me that 
this Britishness that is so ever-present in so much of the performing arts here in Britain, it does travel quite well. But that also means that maybe there's less of a pressure for people to have to wash off their Britishness when they become more of an international star. And that seems to be the case with you, because if you look at your filmography, you start in so many productions that are quite uniquely British. There's much ado about nothing in 1993. Sense and Sensibility, 95, Shakespeare, In Love, the Harry Potter films, and now, of course, Downton Abbey. How do you feel about this idea that Imelda Staunton on the international stage might, in some people's eyes, be a uniquely British performer? Well, I think the one film that you missed out of there, which was the one film that sort of probably made me a tiny bit international, was Mike Lee's Vera Drake. Of and course. that's what actually catapulted, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do the Harry Potters without having had the Oscar nomination for that and all that. So Mike Lee makes British films about British life in certain circles. But our history as actors in this country is theatre. In America, it's film. You know, I think we make actors who go between the two very easily because that's really where we start in the theatre, most of us. And also, if you're lucky enough to go to drama school, you get a theatre training. And actually, maybe some drama schools now need to up their tele-training and film training because we go and talk to students at drama schools. They set foot on a film set and they don't know what the language is or what it means. And the world is changing and there are more and more television pros, there are more and more films. And I think actors are leave drama school straight away and go straight into a big, big film. That didn't happen when we left drama school. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's just different. But I know that with something like Downton, you know, I'm working with Maggie Smith and Penelope Wilton, who I've worked with before, but, you know, they are giants in the world of theatre. And Maggie Smith was winning Oscars before we'd even started working in London theatres, you know, back in the day, the California Suite and the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. She was getting Oscars before any of us knew how to spell it. So we're very lucky that she and Judy and Helen Mirren, you know, all these great female actresses who've got such theatre muscle that easily translates to film. When we say something is uniquely British, it's easy to understand that as far as how it looks on a screen or how it might seem on the stage. But what does that actually mean? Is part of that that notion of being uniquely British in the performing arts, does that have its roots somewhere in the deeper appreciation for the classics and everything that came before it and, and what's really made the British stage? Is that where it comes from? I don't know. I mean, it might do. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, French film, I mean, they make many more films than we do. And I think our film industry is sort of relatively new in taking the longer view of it. Starting silent movies, that's America. But British stories, I mean, whether it's the Love Actually strand or, as you said, the Shakespeare films or Mike Lee and Ken Loach, you know, we have these pockets of storytellers who will tell English stories, but also they need to be universal because a lot of films are about love or about war and those things happen everywhere. But whatever story you're telling is authentic. Certainly Ken Loach is and certainly Mike Lee is. And then you get someone like Emma Thompson writing the most brilliant screenplay for Sense and Sensibility. I think a well-made piece of work can belong to any country. Mm. I want to talk about Vera Drake. And I know it sounded like I left it off that list earlier, but it was just because I wanted to devote some proper time to it. That was in 2004, as you say, directed by Mike Lee. You played a woman in 1950s London who helps other women by performing what were illegal abortions. 
it's tempting to call this a landmark film because it does touch on a topic that is so important even now. It's an important story, of course, but sometimes when a story is so important, that translates to it being quite daunting for the person taking it on. How did it feel for you when you took on this project? Because there is this entire, on top of it being a dramatic performance and a film, a work of fiction, it's also a political film that's going to be seen like that to a lot of people. How did it feel for you? Well, of course, because Mike Lee doesn't work like anyone else, there is no script. The only thing he said to me, he said, all I can say to you is I want you to be part of the film I'm going to make and I'm just going to have to ask you this now because normally I wouldn't because the actors discover what it's going to be as you go along. But he just said, I'm making a film about abortion and to be someone who performs abortions. Do you think you could handle that? Knowing Mike Lee, knowing his work, it is going to be a serious subject. It is not going to be something that is light or sensational. And I said, well, of course, because I thought this is going to be important. That's all I knew. So I had no idea what the film was going to be. You spend six months creating characters. He has the canvas in his head. He paints all the characters. He then puts it all together. Nothing ever will surpass that working experience for me. And none of us knew what it would lead to. So it was an absolutely extraordinary experience. And as I said, you know, everything has sort of been downhill, really. (laughs) I mean, I'm thrilled that you talk about that as though it was an enormously wonderful experience, because I know for sure that a lot of actors would say, this was absolutely terrifying. I came to work every day not knowing what I was doing. No, no. No, it was so liberating, because all the work exists in the place. You know, we'd go to work at eight in the morning and finish at nine at night every day. So any young actors listening to this, never say you're tired. Uh, It doesn't wash. (laughs) Thank you very much. Hard work is so satisfying. And that was the first time I'd worked with Mike Lee. So it was so exciting, the discovery and trying to create a character with Mike and, and find a voice and find these people. It was just so exciting. What about the political side of it? Obviously, as you say, you didn't necessarily know all about that going into the project. Are you a political person by nature? When you look at arts, do you also find yourself seeing political subtexts? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And I think with this film, because it's a very delicate subject, we went and did Q&As sort of all over the world, and it was so shocking to hear women in their 70s and 80s saying, you don't know what my life was like because I either needed an abortion, couldn't have an abortion, I had six children and my life was hell. I mean, I was amazed and I was frightened to go to America. I thought, well, they're not going to want this story. But actually, it was very sobering to see these women thanking Mike Lee for this film, because it's just a subject that needs talking about. An abortion It's the last reason. No one wants that. If a woman is ill, if a woman has had to, you know, become pregnant through a violent... You know, there are so many stories and it's not something that is done lightly. And I think the film just made people look at it and it wasn't pro or... It just said, this is what has happened over the years and this is what is still happening to women. And if women are getting pregnant in some societies now and being ostracised, that's not right. A child, a birth, should be the most joyous thing in the world. And because Mike Lee's father was a doctor, and he said this was a subject he wanted to cover for many years, but also just on a career point that, you know, and I'd done previous, I'd done comedies and things, and I was very glad that, you know, I was, I was put up there with a very serious subject matter. 
Absolutely. I mean, obviously for your career, but certainly to have the validation, I suppose, that comes with making it into the Oscars race, it certainly gives something, a project, a whole new relevance internationally. Mm. What I would like to know is, though, as you said, this is a, it's a serious film. It has a very serious message. It's still very relevant today. I think it also speaks to the transformative power of cinema, though. We often don't give cinema or all the moving image generally the credit that it does deserve to not necessarily change people's minds. I mean, look, a film can be political. You mentioned Ken Loach earlier. A lot of his films are openly political. You could almost describe some of those films as activist films, and that's one genre. But as you say, Vera Drake is very much... It's a film about someone's experience, and it's mm. not necessarily setting out to be political. I think that's applied to it retrospectively. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. You know, th- this is a human story. I remember my daughter at the time was just coming up to 12, and I thought, oh, dear. And, you know, she knew I was making the film, and, of course, I... But then the film was coming out, and it was getting a lot of attention, and she did ask me, what is abortion? And I thought, well, I have to sit her down and explain as carefully as I can... And I'm going to sit with her and watch the film. Just her and I on our own. She finished watching it and she just turns and she just, well, but where were all the men? I thought, that's pretty good from a 12-year-old. She said, why were the men not helping? Where were their husbands or their boy? Why mm. were they? And I thought, well, there we go, yes. Why were the men not helping these women? So out of the so mouth of babes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. I do want to talk about Downton Abbey. I have plenty of questions to ask you about the phenomenon from television that's now on the big screen. But first, I do need to talk to you about one of the most extraordinary experiences I ever had in the theatre. And from where I was sitting, it looked like an extraordinary experience for you as well. We were talking earlier about British theatre and the British classics. This is very much a classic from the American songbook. I speak, of course, about Gypsy, one of the performances of a lifetime to see Imelda Staunton as Mama Rose. Tell me about the feeling of getting up on stage and performing as Mama Rose. As I understand it, a lot of people do see this role as the best role of them all. Beatrice Arthur used to say it was one of her greatest regrets that she never got to play Mama Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do, don't they? They say it's the King Lear of the musical world. Yeah, it was fantastic. Because I'd done Sweeney Todd a couple of years beforehand and... Mr. Sondheim came to our preview of Sweeney and he just came up to me and said, you have to play Rose. I thought, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. Let me just do this. I I don't need to do that. Anyway, cut to. It was great because it's a a really good play and she's a terrible woman. An agonising place to be in your head. This mother of all mothers living her life through her children and wanting success only for herself. And it's violent and narcissistic and cruel and heartbreaking because this woman can't see the effect she's having and she's desperate. And also, of course, this woman did exist as well. Let's not forget that. It's not a fictional character. And this woman was abandoned as a child and she's absolutely empty. And, of course, the American dream, which is, you know, just fill yourself with success and fame. And this is back in, you know, vaudeville days in the 30s and post-depression. And she had to fight to put food on the table. And her journey was through show business. And she was desperate for something to fill the emptiness of her soul and her heart and very cruelly (laughs) pimped her daughter, I think you can safely say. But it was so wonderful to do that piece. And with Lara Pulver playing Gypsy, who is sensational, 
So you've got these great actresses who, of course, are fabulous singers. But it's it was a journey and a half every night, I'm here to tell you, as you can imagine. Well, you saw it. I did that for eight months and you have no life. The only thing you can think about is your voice. And it was like being in the army, I imagine. The discipline, and I am disciplined, but my goodness me, it was the nth degree for that show. Because also, you know, people say, oh, can we take you out for dinner? No, I'm going <laughs> home because this is my job. And that's what all actors do. I take it very seriously and I, and I know I would be so embarrassed if I couldn't sing a note. It's a too big a gig to you know, want a social life weaved in amongst that. I don't see anyone, I don't go anywhere, but look what I get to do from 7.30 till 10 o'clock at night mm. to tell this extraordinary story and sing that amazing music with those lyrics by Sondheim, which are just... Well, I've, I've said this before, he's the Shakespeare of musical theatre because his lyrics, there's no one to beat him. Mm, absolutely, a total agreement here. I mean, you were following in the footsteps of some of theatre's greatest stars, of course, the original Mama Rose being Ethel Merman, the, uh, the last of the big belters, I think she called herself. Mm-hmm. And so many others uh, have played that Angela, role too. Angela Lansbury. Angela, Angela Lansbury. was there on our first night. Really? And I'm very glad I didn't know. And of course, when our director, <laughs> Jonathan Kent, came in and said Angela Lansbury was in tonight, well, I just burst into tears because she's just sublime. So uh, it was very special. Truly wonderful. Mm. I, I've, I've had the pleasure of catching her on stage. But, I mean, Patti LaPone, Bernadette Peters, you know, the list goes on, so many people. When you when you were filling a role like that, one that has been portrayed by so many legends, is it tempting to go back and see what others did before you, or can that see you clouding your own experiences with others? Well, no, I would watch bits. I did watch <laughs> bits, you know. When I, I, mean, I also knew a year in advance. So I watch it, I watch bits, and then I absolutely never do it again because I've watched it get out of my system go oh god I can't never be able to do it I'll never sing you know Methel Merman I'll never be able to sing it like that I'll never be able <laughs> Christ I can't do it I'll never be able to right so I get that out of my system and then just go straight in and go right this is a new piece that I am doing and I have to put my spin on it and you did put your spin on it and one, one, <laughs> there's one very specific moment that I've, I mean, I've compared the other performances as well. I'm sort of outing myself as a bit of a musical theatre nerd now. <laughs> but there is, first of all, there's a lot of emotion infused into your performance. I really think you give Mama Rose a much more sympathetic portrayal. I found it much easier to really understand what was her motivation and really feel deeply sorry for her as a, as a character. But there's also one moment I think is quite a risk when you're singing Rose's Turn and there's a quite a long pause. You just stop for a moment and you're sort of looking around the theatre. And what's extraordinary is that usually when there's silence for whatever reason on the stage, you can hear people coughing and shuffling in their chairs. Maybe there's a chip wrapper if they're particularly rude. But there was not a sound. No one moved. You had the entire theatre right in the palm of your hand. Where, where did that pause come from? I was going to do a really big pause there, and it's not going to work. Um, no, I think she's having a nervous breakdown, and although you're doing it to music, there has to be a jagged edge in there somewhere. And also, all night long, she never shuts up. She never, she never draws breath. So the moment she does draw breath and doesn't speak, you deserve that pause in a way. And I mean, that's not why I did it. I just Musically, it breaks down. And for the first time in her life... She doesn't know what she's saying, where she is, how to carry on. Mm. Well, job well done. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have to move on to Downton Abbey. Rippling through Downton Abbey on television and in the film, 
there is a feeling of change. And of course, that's the idea behind the whole story is that traditions do change. They evolve. People move on. People come and they go. But some things will remain the same. And the idea is that Downton Abbey will remain the same. It's an interesting time for a film with that sort of metaphorical message to be coming out in British culture at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. In a way, you think, oh, no, you just want things to stay the same. And of course, they can't. I mean, for me, joining it now, because I'm not in the series, and although my husband who plays Carson is in the series, so I do feel I've lived it. But I think that's very interesting to think about, should we want things to stay the same? And yet, I also think within this story that Julian Fellows has given the female characters, women questioning their, should I be living in this big house with servants? What's happening with the world? And yet, the audience crave Carson, someone steady. They want things to be steady and safe because we are going to hell in a handcart, let's face it, and to cling on to something that has got tradition. And that's why I dare say we're all obsessed with the royal family or just something that is stable because we're all over the place. It's stability that people want and yet we have to move within that. The big question, of course, is which traditions should we hold on to and which ones should we move on from? And we all collectively need to make this decision. And in a microcosm sort of way, that's the dilemma faced with many of the characters. Your character wants to make a decision without giving anything away that Mm. would be quite untraditional. It would Mm. be against the idea of what people do. And there are other characters, such as Maggie Smith, who looks at this and says, no, things should remain how they've always been. Mm. And it sort of feels like a wider dilemma that we just don't know which ones we should hold on to. No, but in film terms, that's tension and that's what you need to make a drama there's no point of us all making a film that everything's fine or everything's terrible you have to have the tension it's like the tension between Maggie Smith's character and Penelope Wilton's character which we love yes because (laughs) if you think about it she doesn't belong to the house so her role throughout the series was almost as I'm quoting her now but she was the window from the audience into Downton and going well is that right and she could question on behalf of us what was going on and I think you have to be malleable with all these traditions the royal family have had to move with the times it has to move on and I think Downton has embraced that and the film, you know, the fans are just desperate for the film. But I think they'll be delighted with it because, although it's a chocolate box and it's a fantasy, there are serious points in the film. And I think people go, oh, no, I think that's that's quite true. If the maid, the cook's assistant questions, why are we having to do all this for the king and queen? Or why are we having to... Just questioning, just putting things out there, it'll make people listen to more than just, oh, what are we having for tea and dinner is served? <laughs> Well, absolutely. It's such a cosy film. But also, we were talking about traditions, and in a way, the film is about nostalgia. I found myself coming out of it wondering whether it really is a love letter to nostalgia or not, because there are so many elements of the film that, while are very much of the time that is being depicted here, it's also making it clear that time is moving on, culture is moving on, whether these people choose to understand it or not. The the king and queen that come to visit wouldn't have any idea about this secret gay club that's happening without anyone's knowledge behind these unmarked doors. There's an element of culture is moving on, even if these people are living in their own little bubble. Mm. At the end of the film, it did make me wonder, is this an affectionate love letter to nostalgia or perhaps more of a reminder that all things will eventually end, even Downton Abbey, (laughs) the series, the film, perhaps the structure itself? Yeah, I think it's both. You can give and take away. 
I feel that Downton Abbey was Sunday night fair. And it's not political with a big P. It's, as you said, it's cosy television and it's feel good. And that's that's what this is. And we mustn't pretend it's any different. And there are a few little ingredients in there that, that are a little bit risky. And that's within its remit. I think it hits all those marks. And yes, anything about the old days is nostalgic. And, and Britain does that quite well, I suppose. And Julian Fellows with Gosford Park, for goodness sake, all those years ago, you know, he knows how to do that. You can push the boundaries so far with a film like Downton Abbey and I think he served the regular characters because I'm aware I'm on the periphery of it you know the regular characters are who the fans want to see and this is a film that has been made because of the demand of how many people 120 million people watching it he's given them what they want one more question you must indulge me speaking of giving people what they want will we see Mama Rose make a comeback no way (laughs) Imelda Staunton thank you My thanks to the wonderful Imelda Staunton. The Big Interview was produced and edited by Yolene Gothan. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you very much for listening. Listener.